How's everybody doing? Well, man, what an amazing, amazing time of worship, just being together. Um, you know, we're in our Come and Listen series, and I just realized as I walked up here and I flipped my Bible open, I'm like, I have not a note up here. Now, that could mean really bad things for you, um, but I think I can manage my intro, but if you could, can you print out my talk real quick? Um, that would be great. It's amazing. I've got a whole front row of people that do things for me. You know what's amazing? You know, as you, uh, we're going to be in, uh, oh, look at that. Somebody was already prepared going, you know what, if, if he ever forgets, then we're going to have to have this already printed out for him. Um, we're going to be in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 16 today. And, you know, I was thinking about, um, you know, just the come and listen series and what's happening in the Old Testament in this, in this just part of Scripture. And it's so interesting that everything that's happening in the world, I mean, it's tragic, but it's, it's interesting because this is an ancient text and, uh, you know, people that arguably we don't really understand the world that they live in and the things that are going on at the times. I mean, you know, you've got these massive monarchies that are happening and things that are, you know, these authorities. But really, if you get down to the ground level of what's happening in this part of Second Chronicles is it's border wars. There, there's, there's kingdoms that are encroaching on one another. There's kingdoms that are dividing. There's people doing power grabs to pull those kingdoms back because they didn't want to lose those kingdoms. And so what we're going to be in today is so relevant when it comes to where we are globally on planet Earth. But as you read it, you'll also see exactly how personal it is. Because to, if we have to be honest, when it comes to the Ukraine, when it comes to Russia, we are, you know, we're... We're accepting what is being, you know, spun to us by the news. Uh, we know that there's a war. We know that, you know, we know some of the, the factual details. But in all honesty, we're here and, and they're there. And there's, there, there's an element for us where we just have to trust God and know that He is good and that He is sovereign, that He is on high, knowing that He is the King of kings, that there's no authority. There's nothing above Him. There's nothing that's going to trump His plans. There's nothing that's going to deviate things from where they are. But what that does to the human heart is it creates an unsettling thought, doesn't it? Like, why does God allow the things that He allows? Why are the things happening in the world? When, when an earthquake happens, when a hurricane happens, when a tsunami happens, when disaster happens across the globe, we ask the question, if we believe in the sovereignty of God, we believe that he is not distant. We believe that he's not biting his nails going, oh no, they did it again. But he actually is ordaining things. He's the one that puts things in motion. He does everything for his glory, which ultimately results in things that are good for us. And when we look at this scripture, it's no different. And man, is it, it relevant. Well, I want to catch you up. The, the beauty of the Come and Listen series, one is I think it, it helps me, it helps us, it helps our leadership team. Think about how do we study the Bible? When we, and that's why we caught up last week. We walked all the way from Genesis into 2 Chronicles chapter 16. But I also want to give us a little bit of a breakdown, just very summary idea of where we are with the kings, because we, you know, we obviously went through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and now we're in First and Second Chronicles. But in the Bible, it's not always chronological. These overlay each other, which is kind of a beautiful thing. You get to see the same story sometimes from one to sometimes three perspectives, because you've got Isaiah, who is in the kingdom period, and we get to, like the story of Hezekiah, we got three different views uh, as we looked at that passage in Scripture. But it's always good when you 
When you land in a passage in Scripture, you're going from Sunday to Sunday, you're doing a Bible study, you're doing your reading to understand what's surrounding, what, what's happening and who are the characters, you know, where is this on the map and what's happening leading into the story and what's happening coming out of the story. Now, the whole idea in the Come and Listen series is that we see the whole narrative arc is pointing to one thing, to the King of Kings, to Jesus, to one event, the death, burial, and resurrection. The just unbelievably scandalous thought that our sins past, present, and future have been annihilated by the cross of Jesus Christ. Everything in Scripture points to our redemption, this redemptive plan that's been in motion before time. So to review the kingdom, you know, I said last week, we got caught up into the kings, and the first king was king. Come on, this is active participation. I mean, please, I have failed miserably at this point. First king of Israel. There we go. First king of Israel is Saul. And then we move into, and he was, he was a good king, right? And then he had his ark that dipped and he was a bad king. And then all of a sudden, and he was from the tribe. Does anybody, let's, just, let's do trivia. What tribe was Saul from? Anybody? I heard somebody say it. Just say it out loud. Benjamin. He saw the tribe of Benjamin. But because Saul was a failure, what? They went to the tribe of, what, what tribe did they go to to find the next king? Judah, come on, say it loud and proud. Say, I, I did Bible sword drills. I was in the church, man. I did that stuff. Got to get on it. So you've got Saul, you've got David. Both of them kind of had their ark, but David's ark was a little bit better than Saul's, but he also had major failures. But the good thing about David is David, he valued the presence of God and he ended up in a place of repentance. And that's why we see David as kind of the, the, the pinnacle other than Jesus when it comes to the kingdom period. And then we've got who comes after that? Solomon, yeah, he was the wise guy, right? You know, had lots of money, partied like P. Diddy. He did, you know, he did it like nobody else did it. And then we move into where the, we, we just get this, you know, this series of kings and there's 40 kings in all. I've said this before, you know, when you read commentary, it says that there was eight, you know, of the 40, there was eight that were good. They weren't good. I mean, if you read about them, they were, me, I always say they were medium. They were medium. They were not, none of them, they were all a lesser representation of what a king should be. Jesus is the only representative of the authority and the kingship that um, we should follow. But there's the, the leading, the predecessors to the king of kings, to Jesus, the actual king of Judah and the king of the universes, as Dave said. So we've got this, this point with Solomon's reign where Rehoboam, his son, was supposed to take over. And so he'd be the, the next king in line, but there was a dispute over heavy taxation and the burdens of the people. Jeroboam was a military leader for um, Solomon, you know, was in the middle of this dispute. And all of a sudden he plucks 10 tribes of Israel and they go north. And that's the, the northern kingdom. So the kingdom is now split. You've got Judah and Benjamin in the south, Rehoboam. Um, they retained him as king of the south. So this is where we are in this passage in scripture. You've got the northern kingdom in Israel with Jeroboam and then Nadab and then Bashah is, is where... We are. So the northern king at the time is Basha. And then southern kingdom, you got Rehoboam. You got Abijam. I like that. Abijam. Abijam. And then Asa is where, is where we are and where we'll find ourselves in this particular scripture. So northern kingdom um, is Basha and Asa is in the south. And these two guys didn't like each other. You got to think the the, the sense, this is the same countries now divided. I mean, this is like interstate rivalries. These guys were not friends. 
and there was constant war and battling and fighting and bickering between the two kingdoms. And they were trying to get the surrounding kingdoms, these, all these pagan countries, which they're surrounded by in Syria and Egypt, to join with them and say, hey, come, come hang with me so that we can defeat the northern kingdom. Or come hang with me so we can defeat the southern kingdom. They were always at in some sort of skirmish and battle with one another. Again, amazing that this is all about border wars. So let's dive into the passage and we'll, we'll have to get a little bit more context as we jump in. Um, I'm in the ESV. If you got your Bible with you, 2 Chronicles chapter 16, we're gonna start in verse seven. It said, at the time, Hanani, who was a, a prophet, or here it says, the seer came to Asa, the king of Judah, and said to him, because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord, your God. The army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Now, this kind of seems like we did just kind of drop in, like what happened? You've got Hananiah the seer saying, you didn't, you know, you, you've obviously done something, made some sort of deal with the king of Syria, and then ultimately he's going to be your enemy and he's going to escape you. So what happened? Well, if you go back to the earlier parts of this passage and look back and kind of see how things built in 2 Chronicles 15 into 16 is exactly what I was talking about. There was this, there was this skirmish with the, the northern kingdom and Asa needs people on his side. So he goes to the king of Syria and he took gold and silver from the temple and he paid a pagan king and said, look, I'm making a deal just like my father made with you to be on my side when it comes to all of these dealings between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom because he was so competitive and he was so proud. He didn't want uh, the, the, the king of the, the northern kingdom, Basha, to have any movement and it was irrational behavior. So we see kind of what's happening. And then you dive into verse eight. And this is the, the, the prophet, Hanani, still speaking to him and saying, you know, this is what God's trying to, trying to tell you. We're not the Ethiopians and the Libyans, a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen. Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. So there was a previous time when obviously he relied on the Lord and he won this huge battle. So I want to know what that's all about. So as we're studying the Bible, it's like, okay, you dove in, this is your reading for the day, and you've kind of forgotten some of the stuff that's happened before and the stuff that's happened after. So I always want to go back and look. So if you keep going back, you start looking and going, okay, where did, what, what, what's this referring to? In 2 Chronicles chapter 14, you see it. And I'll put it on the screen. So if you've got your Bible, make a note, a little reference, and then point it back to 2 Chronicles 14. It says, Oh Lord, there is none like you to help. Now, right before this, You've got the Ethiopians and the Libyans, they've come to go to war. And there's, you know, what you can estimate is over 200,000 of each are coming against Israel. And the reason you know that is because Asa considers his army small and he's in the 200,000 range in terms of people. 300 chariots, could you imagine those coming at you? He was, thought he was done for. And so this is his response in this particular situation. He says, oh Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak, saying they're mighty and we're weak. Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rely on you. And in your name, we have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. I mean, that should be our prayer today. I mean, as we're thinking about 
the border wars and we're thinking about the power grabs and all the things that we think about. How is this going to affect our economy? How is this, this war you know, on the other side of the globe going to affect what's already happening in, in the economic world and in the United States? Our safety, are we going to send troops? What's going what's to happen to us? All the things that we think of that have to do with everything down here. But for us to plead and rend the heavens and pray to God, say, let not man prevail against you, God. And man's plans, man's pride. In verse 12, it says, So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa, before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. So now we know what's going on in, in verse 8. What, what Hanani is referring to, he's like, Hey, before you relied on God, you came to God and said, Hey, I have no shot here without you. I don't want to make a step in any direction without you. You are the one that rules. You are the one that can, can come to the aid of the weak in the face of the mighty and in the face of an enemy, in the face of evil men's plans. You are the one that can come and change things. There was humility in chapter 14, whereas we got to make deals with the devil right here in chapter 16. Again, Ace is considered a good king. Just telling you, I think they're all medium. So you look at verse nine, it says, for the eyes of the Lord run, and he's, this is, um, again, Hannah and I speaking for God. He's saying, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. I mean, just think about that. I mean, what's he trying to say there? The eyes of the Lord run to and fro, fro throughout the whole earth. He's basically saying, God's in it. He is not here going, I wonder what's gonna happen. He's everywhere. He's personal. He's sitting beside you. He's in every movement. He's not, not thinking about you. I think we sometimes have that thought process. Like God's not, he's just not thinking about me right now. There's a war in Russia. No, he's thinking about you. He's thinking about you more than you are thinking about you, more than your best friend's thinking about you, more than your spouse is thinking about you. He is thinking about you. He is, he, he, he wants something that's going on in your heart. He's, 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 he's beckoning you. He's always in that place. He is the eternity that is set in the hearts of men. It says, for the, Lord's, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth. To what? To give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Now I'll stop right here in the middle of the verse because that seems problematic for me. Because we think about the gospel and we think about grace. We think about God being the God of mercy. But all of a sudden we feel like this is kind of a verse that makes God feel like he's, he's all about reciprocity. You do for me and I'll do for you. If you're blameless and sinless and you do things right, then I'll come to your aid. I mean, isn't that kind of one of those, it seems like it, based on what we're always, I mean, that, that doesn't sound like the unending ocean of grace, Derek. You know what I'm saying? So what does that mean? Well, if you get down to the, to the root, and that's why it's good to you know, have some study tools with you when, you when you're looking or have another translation. Now, some of you probably have the NIV. And the NIV, I, I wouldn't, you know, pick one over the other. Uh, ESV is a word-for-word -word translation. The NIV is a phrased translation. But sometimes when you're translating something like Hebrew, having the phrase will actually translate it more accurately than having to go through the choppiness of word-for-word. -word. So again, one's not better than the other, but one sometimes in certain situations is better. And in this instance, the NIV is better because the NIV takes the whole phrase, which is the heart is blameless and and takes it in the proper term and says it's who is wholehearted towards God. So the idea is this idea of blameless is not, is not sinless. It's you're all in. You're not half-hearted. 
Those who are fully in, you've, you've fully surrendered, you've fully believed, you've fully trust, you've fully given everything, all your hope. You're completely and totally, because what's this passage about? Reliance. Who are you relying on? Are you relying on the king of Syria because you exchanged gold and silver? Or are you relying on God? And Hannah and I is just saying, you want to be wholehearted with God. What he's trying to say is, hey, God sees everything. God knows everything. God's in control of everything. He's ready to give you strong support. But are you willing to surrender to him? Are you willing to be wholehearted with him? Are you willing to humble yourself before him to know that you can't do it without him and be wholehearted? That's what that, that section of scripture means. And I did, like I said, I do like the NIV, I probably should have put it up there, but I wanted to have this moment to say, hey, sometimes you read something and you're like, man, God was mean in the Old Testament. And really, it's the same type of surrender when we surrender to Jesus. It goes on, it says, you have done foolishly in this and from now on, you will have wars. Now, what's crazy about that is think about that area. Think about Syria, think about Jordan, think about the, all the countries that surround Israel today. Are they at war with those countries? Oh my goodness, yes. I mean, all, all the way, I mean, brutal wars. In 1966, the Six-Day War, I mean, you think about Syria and Israel and how brutal, how many people died, the skirmishes, the, I mean, and of course the United States is, you know, always getting tugged and pulled. I mean, there's always talk, in, even in the U.S., about Israel, about Israel, about the Middle East. I mean, peace in the Middle East. I mean, it's almost a joke that's all over T-shirts, you know? Peace in the Middle East, man, that's all I want. I mean, it's, it's so in our culture. And thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, there was a deal made with gold and silver with Syria. And God said, you will always be at war with Syria, the one you've made a deal with. Because of this, because you've done foolishly in this, from now on, you will have wars. And certainly, they have had that. You know, as we dig in, you know, I mean, I think one of the questions we have to ask is, you know, why did God respond the way that he did? I mean, we do see this thing where we see God moving in a particular direction and looking at what Asa did. Asa previously relied on God and he really was for 35 years of his 40 year reign. He was the guy that was taking down the the, the altars of Baal, taking down the Asherah poles and all of the other idols of worship. He came in and he cleaned house. He did amazing things. In 35 years of his 40-year reign, he was a good king. And he had just a, a rough patch in, in, the, in the last five years, going and plundering the temple to get gold and silver to pay off Syria so that he can defeat his you know, in-state rival up north. But why did God respond the way that he did? I mean, we're just gonna answer some questions from the passage because we're, we're studying the Bible. Well, you can go back in the passage. Why? It's right there in the text. He did not rely on the Lord your God. You did not rely on the Lord your God. Now, the question is, and, if you, and this is an easy one, if you think about Asa, would Asa say, I believe in God? Yeah, certainly. Would Asa say, I think God is, is mighty to save? yes. Is, is God just? Yes. Does God extend mercy? Yes. Could God defeat anyone? Yes. He would say, I believe all these things. I believe that God is good. I believe that God is on my side. I, his actions for 35 years represented in many ways that he believed. But even in the moments in which he was exchanging gold and silver, would, you say that he, would he say that he believed in God? Yes, Asa would say that he believed in God. But the problem is, is there was a gap between 
what he said he believed and what he actually believed. There was a gap between what he said he believed and what his actions were. Did his actions show that he believed that God would come through? Who was he believing in in the moment? And I, I think about, about you and me. I think that's a, a, a reality. You know, years ago I did a, a, an illustration. It was an, I, I say this because people always tell me, what a horrible illustration. And you know what? It did turn out horribly. Um, but it was a good illustration. It just, people didn't work with me. Um, it, that happens occasionally when you're, I was young and, and doing a, a preaching on a Sunday night at River City, early days. And the illustration was, went, went like this. And it was really about belief because a lot, everybody in here, you say you believe in God. Many of you would say that God is sovereign on high in, in every situation, no matter what. You would say God is in it. He has authority over all things. I believe in him. The, in, the image of the invisible God, we have faith in something that we can't see. We would all say that. We all would lean in, at least a lot of us in the room. Some of you are trying to figure it out. You're like, hey, try, you know, using deduction, I don't know that I believe. But there's many of you that would call yourself a Christian and say you're a believer. So I asked you know, a, a simple question. And I had a, a pegboard set up, you know, about 15 feet away with a big balloon pegged to it. And I had a pellet gun. Um, and I know, I was at the city rescue mission in the south with a gun in a church. It was fantastic. And I, I pumped it up about 15 times. He's laughing because he was there. Um, and it was pretty bad. So I, nobody got, I'll just say this up front so nobody's nervous. So people get these illustrations, they just feel bad. And they're like, I don't know, did somebody get shot? Nobody got shot. Anyway, there's a, there's a balloon pin there and I'm a good old boy and everybody in the room pretty much knew because I had told so many redneck stories by then that I could shoot. And so the balloon set up and I got a pellet gun and I said, how many of you believe that I can shoot the balloon? And 100%, of course, 100% of the room goes, yeah, good old boy, he ain't gonna miss that balloon. And so everybody says, he can shoot the balloon. I said, all right, you believe that. Okay, who wants to hold the balloon? Uh -huh. You see where I'm going, right? 10 people, 10%. That's all I got was 10%. And then this was the fatal flaw in my illustration. I mean, it wasn't, it was really good, but this is where it went wrong. I said, who wants to hold the balloon in their teeth? Yeah, you know, my hope was zero, you know, but it was a young crowd, you know. <laughs> and so this one guy, Nicholas, God bless you. He lives in Pensacola. I still talk to him on Facebook, but he came up and he was like, I'll do it, you know. And here I got a guy that was, he was actually at the city rescue mission, uh, rec a recovering guy. And, and uh, he had the balloon in his teeth and I really didn't want any of this to go on. The, the balloon's just quivering like this. And the, the, like the, the administrative assistant for the whole church is standing behind her and she's literally looking at me in terror, like we are going to shut down, the church is gonna be lost. Like I'm sitting here with the gun about to shoot. The, it's just, all of it went very, very wrong. But you understand the illustration. We say that we believe, right? We say that we believe. And then all of a sudden, hey, come on in and hold it with your teeth. 1%, you know, I was going for zero, but 1%. You say you believe, but do you really believe? Do we, are we willing to step in? Are we willing to risk? Are we willing to, to put all of our chips in? So why did God respond this way? Because we say that, that we believe. Asa said that he believed, but his actions, plundering the temple, taking gold and silver and making a deal with Syria, who had always been an enemy and never really been an ally except when it served their interests. So we understand why God did what he did, because he's trying to resolve this gap between what we say and what he said and what he actually believed. 
So secondly, the second question is, what wrong assumptions do we make about God that makes us trust other things before we trust God? Because that's what's going on in the passage with Asa, right? Something triggered something because in the past he had made a good decision just one chapter before. And all of a sudden, what, what is the assumption? What, what is the thing that we, you know, what are some of the assumptions that we make that make us trust other things other than God? I mean, this was kind of where we were last week and talking about idolatry and talking about, you know, what is the thing that we put in place of the gap that we have when it comes to our needs and our desires? Last week was about desire. This week is about when we suffer, when we're pinned down, when we're in a tough spot, what do we run to? What are we grabbing for to rescue us and save us? Why? What, what, what's an assumption? Well, one is God is passive. God is passive. I mean, I think that's what people think in situations that are going on right now in the world. You know, why does God allow certain things to happen. Well, God's passive. He's, he's, you know, moving the chess pieces some, but he is hands off. He's not really that involved in our everyday life. I think even for us in situations, global situations that happen, we think about our own situations and we almost feel guilt that we're, we have worry or we're worried about our health or we're worried about the next paycheck or we're worried about some of these small things because we're thinking about, well, at least I'm not in the Ukraine. I'm, I'm not doing this. And this, God's got bigger things to deal with than my life. So I need, to, I need to deal with this. I need to figure out how to work this thing out. And God's not our first line of defense. Prayer is not our first line of defense. Getting on our knees and bowing before him is not our first line of defense. Our own strength is our first line of defense. We believe that God doesn't care. And why do we sometimes think God is passive? Because in our situations, we wait sometimes. Because we want things when we want them. And we wait and we think, okay, I've waited, I've prayed, I've laid it before the Lord, I've, I've, I've set out the fleece and I don't know what's happened. All the people who've been to church a few times know what I'm talking about. It's like, we're gonna lay a fleece out. God told us we're moving to Boston and that's what we do. So we do it for a couple of months, you know, maybe a year. And we, we think, man, I have waited. I have been so patient and we, we, we all of a sudden, we, we go to God as passive. God doesn't care. I'm gonna have to take the reins. I'm gonna have to employ something in this spot to, to figure out how to deal with the issue with my finances or my health or my own desires, my identity maybe. Maybe in the way that I feel in my, in my, my gut. What should I be doing in life? We think God doesn't care. You know, Abraham did the same thing. You know, God told him, this is, your, this is your destiny. I mean, you ever have thought that like in life, you know, you're young, you know, you're 15, 16, 17, 22, 25. This is my destiny. This is where I'm gonna end up. And then you end up in your 30 and you're like, you know, somebody spoke a prophetic word over me when I was 19, but uh, still waiting on him. You know, he's not here. He's supposed to have brown hair, only dated blonde guys. But you've got this, you know, you've got, things that happen along the way and you're waiting on God and you're waiting on things to, to, to formalize. And Abraham, you know, God told him, hey, you, look at the stars in the sky. These are gonna be your descendants. I'm gonna be, this is gonna be a nation. I'm gonna be your God and you're gonna be my people. And then all of a sudden he starts getting older and he hadn't even had one child, like one son. So what happens? They usurp the plan of God, right? And Sarah's so old, she's like, this ain't gonna happen. And says, take the handmaiden, you know? And that's what Abraham does. And they have a son, Ishmael. 
But that wasn't God's intended plan. They usurped it. And, and man, that went horribly wrong. I mean, God's plan still prevailed, right? You know, Isaac was born. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I mean, we know that's the foundation of the people of Israel. But, you know, you've got another whole side of that with Ishmael and sidestepping. And I got to ask the question, and as we, as we think about these wrong assumptions that God is passive and God doesn't care, we all of a sudden do what? We begin to employ our own king of Syria. And I just got to ask the question, because I was asking this question this week. Like, what's my king of Syria? Like when things really, when the pressure cooker is on and I'm like, yeah, God, I got to go to church. I got to pray, but I got to deal with this. What is my king of Syria? You know, what is going to solve my problem with my ego, with my, because this is an issue of ego right here. You know, he's got some problems with the guy up north, right? I mean, and we, we have rivalries. We have things that we are trying to work out, especially with our own identity when it comes to success, where we fit in the pecking order of life. Are we in a space where we feel good about ourselves? And for us, our king of Syria might be success. I'm, I'm going to be more successful than this guy or these people. I'm going to make sure I have these things. Money might be in that place of our king of Syria. What's going to rescue me? What's going to be my identity? Rather than a, a loved son of the king of the universe, we think a little change, a little bit of money, a little bit of success, a nicer car will be the thing that identifies us. And that will be the thing that carries us. That will be the thing that will be the measure of our worth and our worthiness. How fragile is that? Or maybe because things have gotten so in a certain way, we think we can run to anything to medicate. And that's what we do. I mean, maybe it's sexual sin. I mean, that's the hidden junk in, in, inside and outside the church that nobody talks about. It's been, been so normalized in our culture. I mean, the, the, the amount and the accessibility of pornography is off the charts. And it's this quiet thing that nobody, no, no men want to talk about, no women really want to talk about, but it needs to be talked about because it is a king of Syria that we are running to as a culture. And it's become normalized on HBO Max or whatever it is that you, that we, that you watch and we don't call pornography. And I'm not, I watch shows, I watch Netflix, I got Amazon Prime, I'm in it with you. But what have we allowed to begin to dominate our brain and our mind? What has become the thing that we thought would medicate us or distract us from the problem of this world, the kingdom up north that's bothering us, the thing, the health problem, the issue that we have where we all of a sudden pull ourselves out of that to engage in something that's less than good that God wouldn't have us do. And we think, oh, God's not worried about what I watch on the internet. I mean, you haven't read the Bible then. He, he, he is concerned about your heart. He is always gonna lead you to life. And I'm telling you, that is a grave that you'll find yourself in. That is where the enemy will bury you will destroy your marriage, will destroy relationships, will destroy your life, will destroy your job. It's like heroin. Sexual addiction will crush you. And there's men in this room and women in this room where God wants to free you. He's not coming to condemn you. If you read John 3, 17, he did not come to judge you, to condemn you, but to save you, to rescue you, to lead you to life. He will meet you where you are. He is not going to come against you. He's not coming with fire. He will meet you where you are, but he does not want to allow you to stay where you are. 
He wants to break the bonds that you have with the king of Syria. You know, I had a, in my mind, and I think this is prophetic for somebody in the room, somebody's got a pill they take every day and it's not prescribed to you, you found a way to get it. And it, it's the thing that you think you're, you're relying on for the, re, like, this is what I do. And you've done it in private and nobody knows. Well, actually, you think nobody knows, but somebody knows that there's something different about your personality. There's something different about you, something that you're leaning on. And I'm not against medication. I mean, I think that God, the, in the, God's common grace, he's given us doctors, he's given us things that, that can change, you know, help marriages because somebody's got chemical imbalances. Don't get me wrong but you're taking a pill, you're medicating, and you know that you are, and it's, it's beginning to own you, and you don't think it owns you. Actually, in the back of your mind, you're starting to think it owns me, and you're having this war. You are at war, and you're staying in that war because that is your king of Syria. Maybe it's weed. I mean, I know people don't want me to get on weed because I know there's people in here that smoke weed. I'm just gonna say it. And you think, oh, well, weed, alcohol, it's all the same thing, right? I mean, I know. I mean, I know that's a, there's an argument to be made there. But it's different. There's a difference. And I think alcohol's got its problems too. God, I mean, what does the Bible say about alcohol? I think there's people that, I mean, I, again, this is a question for me as a pastor in the culture that we live in. You know that I wouldn't come up here and say that the Bible tells us that we can't drink alcohol because it doesn't. But it does say, do not get hammered. Do not get drunk, that it leads to disaster. Look at the history of alcohol through the Bible. I mean, you can go all the way back to Genesis. Disaster, 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 disaster. Actually, it's usually alcohol, sexual sin. I mean, has anything changed in culture? I mean, alcohol, man, I just made a bad decision. Destroy, it can destroy your life. There's many th good things because I just said last week, it's amazing to give glory to God having a, a glass of wine, having good food. But the abuse of anything that God's given or elevation or being enslaved by anything says that we've run to the king of Syria. We've done something. And when I think about weed and I think of the way it's overtaken our culture, again, if you use it for medical reasons, again, that's almost a funny thing because everybody and your brother has a weed card if they're 22, 25 at Jack's Beach. Like, what are you, what's your problem? You're healthier than I am. But I always think about, I, I, I know the Apostle Paul prescribed wine to Timothy when Timothy was having problems. So I know that Paul probably had a glass of wine. Jesus was considered a drunk and a glutton. So maybe he had wine. His first miracle was making wine. But I always think about the Apostle Paul and running the race and how aggressive he was. And I just don't think he was the guy that was into wake and bake. Like he just didn't smoke weed. <laughs> like he wouldn't, he would look at that particular drug and say, this is not gonna lead anywhere good. This isn't gonna be good for marriages. This isn't gonna be good for, you know, getting a job. It might be good when I'm trying to get pizza for friends, but that's about it. And I'm just throwing the challenge down and somebody might leave the church over this. Stop smoking weed. Just stop smoking weed. I mean, it is going to ruin you. It is going to break up your relationship. It is going to crush your marriage. It is, and it seems so small. I mean, bombs are being dropped on the other side of the world. Isn't God more concerned about that? Yes, he's concerned about that, but he's just as concerned about your heart, your marriage, your life, and your salvation. 
He has come to save you and rescue you by the power of his word. And you've got a king of Syria you've been running to time and time again. You can put so many different things in this slot. It's our self-reliance that crushes us. We think we got this when it comes to sexual sin, when it comes to the things that we gravitate towards. That's the, that's the response. I got this, man. I got this. I can do this. That's what Asa said. I got this. Just go get some gold, get some silver. We'll take care of this battle right now. As opposed to, I am weak, you are strong, you are the king of everything, and I know you can rescue and save. Come to our aid. We rely fully on you. Coming to God first. Now, the thing that we see in Scripture is that God is not passive in any way. In Isaiah 64, 4, it says, From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. He's ready. You might be waiting, but he is working and he is in it with you. The last question, and I think this is a good one because it's one that was in my mind as I was in this passage is where's the balance between waiting on God and taking responsibility for our lives? Like, do we just kind of pray? I got cancer. I'm just going to eat Cheetos and sit with the remote. God, cure me. All right, let's watch TV some more. I mean, do we go to the doctor? Do we, do we take anything that's prescribed? Do we do anything earthly on planet earth? Of course you do. You know, of course you do. Of course, we're going we're gonna to engage. God's, God's provided those. But what's the balance in saying, I'm, am I trusting God and going and chasing the, you know, the, going and asking the doctor to help me, you know, and not believing that God could heal me? Or, you know, I've got money issues. Do I not get off the couch? I mean, what, what do I do? You know, what's the, what's the balance? How do, I, how do I know I'm fully surrendered and wholehearted relying on God? And there's two ways. I mean, there's multiple ways, but these are the two that you see in the passage. And these are the two that I think we understand in our culture and our lives today. One is when panic is involved, we know that we're about to run to the king of Syria, right? And not just a doctor. Like you've got a health problem. And I've been there where I've scrambled. I've spent months on WebMD trying to figure out an undiagnosed neurological disorder, going into a deep hole of depression, going, yeah, I prayed for a couple months, but I'm gonna figure this out. I'm gonna get the right neurologist. I'm gonna get the right plan. I'm gonna get the right stuff. They're gonna figure it out. They're gonna diagnose it. And we're gonna get to the end of this thing. And God was kind of a side note, but my life was completely enraptured by, I've got to solve this problem and panicking about what the future might look like with whatever was going to happen. Because you get on the internet, you get on WebMD, you get on the Googleator, and all of a sudden you realize, I, I'm, I probably will be dead tomorrow, babe. Get the will. Panic, fear, it will drive you to the king of Syria. And what does scripture say? That is not part of who we are. We're no longer submitting to the spirit of fear. That, that is not who we are. It, what, what, is, what does it say? It, what does Peter say? I love what he says. Don't, don't fear the one that can kill you. Worry about the one who can kill the body and the soul in hell. And only God can do that. Because we're on his side, guess what we have to fear? Nothing. Nothing. Death, the very thing that we're all worried about at the end of the day has been defeated by the cross of Jesus Christ. Don't panic. 
Of course, there's gonna be moments when we're scared. Of course, you can, you can have feelings of, you know, I, I'm, I'm nervous about the future. I'm worried about the future, but I'm putting my heart and my soul, I'm laying my petitions before God. I know that He cares for me. I know that He loves me. This is my only hope. Yes, we're going to the doctor this week. Yes, I got another chemo treatment this week. But my heart and my soul, this is not my foundation. This is not the firm foundation under my feet. I'm doing what's smart and wise as I live here on planet earth. But my hope is in Jesus, the King of Kings. I will no longer go to the King of Syria for my hope. And if this fails me, guess what? It's okay because I'm here with him and he has me. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. So no panic. The other thing is pride. <laughs> there's certainly pride in this passage and there's certainly pride in us that makes us run to the king of Syria. We can do it ourselves. We can, we can figure it out ourselves. So common in the West because we have what we need. We get in these places where, you know, I got a nice house, got a nice car. I make enough money. How much do I need God? I need, I need religion. I need to go to church on Sunday. I need to serve a little bit so I feel good about myself. My kids need to be in youth group so they're not terrors here in Jack's Beach. But other than that, it's just Jesus is small and my life is big. I'm building my own kingdom. I've got my own life and it's about me. God's a small player in my wonderful story. As opposed to the way that God created you, which is you get the privilege of being invited in to the unbelievable, massive, overarching story of God. And you get to be a small part in the only story that matters where Jesus is king and you're not king. But if we begin building kingdoms for ourselves, that pride right there, if we're wondering where the balance is between taking responsibility and doing things in life, understand that pride has no place. So what do we do? How do we figure this out? Well, it's in the passage. One is what Hanani says, remember what God's done. Go back. Look what happened with the Ethiopians and the Libyans. Look at your life. Look at where God's rescued you from. Look at your journal. Look at your story of faith. Look at the story of grace in your lives. Look at what God has done. Remember His faithfulness. Secondly, know the nature of God in our lives by His Word and by His actions. Look at the Word of God. God is faithful. The reason we have, have this is even outside of our own story, we've got an am, a, a, amazing story of God's faithfulness time and time again. And it doesn't change. He is always a God full of mercy, always a God full of grace, always love, always for you and not against you. You are more than conquerors because of what He has done. He who did not spare His own Son, how much more will He give you what you need and come to your aid? Lastly, you can just look at the cross of Jesus Christ. If you're wondering how God operates, when you, when you don't know what the end game is gonna be, you just think about what it must have been like to be standing at the foot of the cross and looking up at Jesus being bloody because you're thinking this is the most unfair. This is not the way the story should have ended. This is not the way things should have gone. All hope is lost. There's nothing for us. Imagine the followers of Jesus thinking, this is our King. This is our hope. And He's dying on a hill, on a garbage dump, bleeding out into the soil. No hope, all hope is lost. That's what we think. That's our vantage point in the middle of crisis, in the middle of health issues. But God's vantage point is on the other side of that, knowing, yeah, there'll be death. There's gonna be a grave. 
that grave's going to be empty. And we look back now at the cross and it's our place of celebration. The worst day became the best day in history for you and me. Paving the way that we would never have to run to the king of Syria again. We'd never have to run to what the enemy lays before our eyes to say, this will save you, this will rescue you. We can say, no, I have one savior, I have one king and his name is Jesus. Let's stand. God, we love you. God, just come into our hearts with conviction, knowing that you've not come to condemn us, but to free us, to lead us home, to lead us away from addiction, from lies, that it's gonna be okay, that we can handle it, that we can do it ourselves, and to lead us all the way to your feet. In Jesus' name, amen.